This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. This is Lewis Lapham with The World in Time, speaking today with the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and historian Rick Atkinson about his new and very fine book, The British Are Coming, The War for America, Lexington to Princeton, 1775-1777. This is volume one of your intended three-volume history of the American Revolutionary War, Rick. And it's a very, it's the best kind of history because you have a gift for telling a story and a talent for picturing both persons and places. Perhaps you can begin by setting the scene in Boston in the spring of 1775. Yeah, well, the spring of 1775 uh, arrives, and it's been a very mild winter. Boston Harbor has not once frozen over in the entire winter of 1774-75. And that's about the only good thing that's happened in Boston because the British, as part of the increasing pressure being applied to the American rebels, uh, which has been going on for some years now as a consequence of the British trying to impose certain taxes in order in part to recoup money that they had spent in the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War as we know it, um, and otherwise to uh, to to uh, impose their imperial will on the new territories in North America that they have won as part of their great victory in the Seven Years' War. Uh, it's caused uh, frictions that have ultimately led to rebellion, and they're going to ultimately lead to revolution. And this is all coming to a head in the spring of 1775 when the British, as part of the punishment that they've imposed on Bostonians, particularly for being obstreperous and for throwing uh, the famous tea into the Boston Harbor in December of 1773, have closed the port. And so there's real suffering going on in Boston, despite the nice weather. Um, anything that comes into Boston basically has to be dragged in overland. Uh, unemployment is very high. There are seething resentments. Uh, the town is occupied by a number of British regulars, regiments belonging to the King's Army. Um, and, and the harbor and the, uh, the outer waters of Boston are heavily infested with British men of war. So um, when we get to, to March of 1775, both sides are expecting more trouble. It's not clear precisely where it's going to go. Uh, but the British commander, General Thomas Gage, is expecting orders from London, giving him uh, specific instructions on how he should handle this refractory people and uh, and how he should suppress the rebellion. So that's where we are when when uh, the the days start to get longer, the weather warms, and um, nothing good is on the horizon. And then the orders arrive from London, and and what are those orders, and how does Gage respond? The orders are, uh, and this is from the king's ministry, that he is to um, make an effort to suppress the rebellion by uh, seizing, if necessary, rebel leaders, 
by seizing rebel munitions and other uh, war material, and uh, otherwise taking a hard line against uh, the, the the Massachusetts uh, rebellion in particular. Um, Gage has been in America for quite some time. He had fought in the uh, Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, as a younger officer. He's married an American, um, Margaret Kemble of New Jersey. Um, he's got a pretty good understanding of uh, at least the New England part of the rebellion. And um, he is reluctant to go chasing rebel leaders like John Hancock and Samuel Adams all over Massachusetts. So what he decides to do instead, given the latitude that uh, is contained in these orders that have arrived from London in the middle of April 1775, is he's going to march a sizable force to Concord, where he knows, because he's got pretty good intelligence, that the rebels have hidden a number of uh, munitions, cannons, gunpowder, and other things that uh, the, the rebels have been stockpiling. And so uh, on April 18th, 1775, he... Uh, gives orders essentially that uh, a force of, of almost a thousand men is going to march during the night uh, about 18 miles to Concord to carry out this mission. Before we start on that march, tell us what who's in charge of war policy in, in England and, and talk a little bit about the character of George III and, and and the misapprehension on the part of, of the British, their assumptions about America. They think it's going to be easy. They think the Americans are cowardly. They 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 have no idea of of the dimensions of of, of the continental eastern seaboard of the United States, and they they really don't know what they're getting into. So explain a little bit about that. When yeah, that's, that's quite correct, Lewis. The British, uh, by this point, 1775, have long been afflicted with the disease of victory, hubris. Um, as a consequence of their, their uh, stunning triumph in the Seven Years' War, uh, the, the, tr- the Treaty of 1763, uh, signed by their adversaries, the French and the Spanish, has given Britain Canada a half billion fertile acres west of the Appalachians, certain sugar islands in the West Indies, parts of India. It's among the greatest haul ever won by force of arms. Uh, The British Empire has been created. Uh, The British Empire is ascendant. There are agricultural and industrial revolutions that are well underway in Britain at this time. Uh, the steam engine, the spinning jenny, all of these are, are just coming into force in Britain. Um, so they're feeling their oats. Uh, they're the world, world superpower. They have become a superpower. They have the greatest navy the world has ever seen. They have a very fine, tested army, um, and they're not reluctant to use them. And uh, they have a, an imperial mercantilistic view of how empires should be organized. It's for the benefit of the mother country. Colonies are uh, colonies exist essentially to provide raw materials and to buy finished products from the mother country. Um, so we can see a collision course uh, uh, being set up here because the Americans don't view themselves as uh, simply providers of raw materials and buyers of British products. The the King George III has been king since uh, 1760. He's not the the nitwit that our 
typical stereotype in America would have, um, or that we see every night on the stage in Hamilton, for that matter. Um, he's actually a man of parts. He's interested in lots of things. He's got some intellectual attainments. Um, he's he's now had enough experience on the throne. He's in his mid thirties by this point um, that he's got a fair amount of confidence in himself and he is really going to be the guy who's driving the train when it comes to the american revolution he believes that the uh this this challenge to british imperial authority threatens the empire it's no less than that he believes in his principal ministers um, and a substantial majority of both houses of parliament the the house of commons and the house of lords believe that if the american uh rebels are permitted to peel the colonies away it's the beginning of the end of the empire because it will encourage insurrections in canada the west indies india ireland uh, they also have uh, strategic misconceptions about the degree of loyalism in the 13 colonies. They believe that a substantial uh, plurality, if not a majority, of Americans are actually loyal to the crown. That's wrong. And they also believe that the Americans can be cowed by military force, firepower if necessary. That's also wrong. So here you have three pretty substantial strategic misconceptions that is animating British policy. They will predicate their their approach to the American rebellion on these misconceptions. The truth is that over the course of 150 years, the American colonies and England have grown apart. They have, uh, there has been benign neglect toward the colonies from uh, London for decades uh, the Americans have become accustomed to governing themselves. They have their own local councils, their own prov- provincial assemblies. They believe that these are every bit as legitimate as parliament in terms of uh, determining their own uh, uh, way in, of life. Uh, this is something that uh, the, the king personally finds uh, offensive. Uh, and he believes that it's simply unconstitutional and, 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 and cannot be supported without doing damage to this construct that has arisen over the last 12 or 13 years after the, after their great victory in 1763. So you can see that these are two uh, points of view, two worldviews, really, that are um, incompatible. And it's as, as the king himself says, blows must decide and blows will decide. And so it's with those intentions and misperceptions in mind that the British troops step off on April, whatever it is, 19th, for Concord. And what happens to them? Well, they they march out. Of course, um, the Americans immediately know it's hard to move a 1,000 men out of Boston in the middle of the night without uh, arousing the locals. Uh, famously, uh, a couple of heralds are sent out into the countryside to alert the locals. One of those is Paul Revere. He's sent by Joseph Warren, a physician in Boston who's one of the rebel leaders. Um, Revere rides into the countryside shouting, not the British are coming, which wouldn't have made any sense to people who still thought of themselves as British, but that the regulars are coming out, meaning the regular army. Um, there's another uh, herald named uh, named uh, William Dawes. He all he takes a different route. 
also alerting the countryside. Both of them essentially uh, rendezvous in Lexington. They tell uh, John Hancock and Samuel Adams, who have taken refuge there, that they're in danger, that they need to get out of the way. Uh, and on their heels, essentially, is this large column of, of, of British soldiers heading toward Concord. Lexington is about six miles closer to Boston than Concord is. They uh, are met by a somewhat ragtag rabble of militiamen on Lexington Common. They have assembled, uh, having heard these warnings from Boston. They're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting in the small hours of April 19th, 1775. The Brits do not show up. They are, the the militiamen are dismissed and told to come back if they hear the warning bell. Well, the warning bell later rings. Only about 80 to 90 of the militiamen, about half of the original number, uh, reassemble on Lexington uh, Common. And uh, the, the, the British arrive. There are orders shouted from their officers, rebels throw down your weapons, uh, rebels disperse, a shot rings out. No one knows, no one will ever know who fired that shot, but it uh, caused a, a, a series of volleys from the British soldiers in what was really not a, a battle or even a skirmish. It was an execution. Uh, when the British troops, who really have, have been very undisciplined uh, for about three minutes, when they're finally contained by their officers, there are eight Americans uh, dead on the green, uh, ten others have been wounded. Uh, one British soldier has been uh, lightly wounded. A horse has been shot twice, not mortally, a British horse. And off they go to Concord, uh, which is their original mission. By this time, there's a large rebel force in Concord that has had time to be assembled to think through what's happened. They get word that there's been gunplay in Lexington, and they are ready for the, the British column when it arrives in Concord uh, uh, mid-morning on April 19th. And what happens to the column when they get to Concord? Well, nothing good happens to the British from that moment on for the rest of the day. They get to Concord. They find very few of the munitions that they're looking for because the Americans also have good intelligence, and they know that the British have come to look for those cannons and gunpowder and so on, and most of that stuff has been moved. So part of the British force is sent across Concord Bridge, the North Bridge, which spans the Concord River. Uh, and as they get to the bridge, they see hundreds of militiamen on a hill on the far side of the bridge. A small portion of the for of, uh, force goes on to a farm, again looking for more munitions. Uh, the rebels who are on the hill come down the hill. Again, shots are fired. This time it's certain that the British fire for the first time. It's a foolish maneuver because they're outnumbered probably three or four to one at this point. Um, there's gunplay for a couple of minutes at the bridge. Uh, two British uh, soldiers are killed. Um, four British lieutenants are either killed or wounded, which leaves the British force at the bridge leaderless, essentially. Uh, a couple of Americans are killed. This is the shot heard around the world, famously, in Longfellow's telling of it. The British at this point realize that they've got a big problem because more American militiamen from all over eastern Massachusetts are arriving by the minute. There are eventually going to be about 4,000 of them. The British commander makes the 
sensible decision, first of all, to send back to Boston for reinforcement, and secondly, to gather his force together and to head back to Boston as, as quick as, quickly as they can march. That's what they do, and they are heckled by gunfire all the way back to Boston. It's a long, hot march. Um, they've already had substantial casualties. The casualties are going to increase as the day goes on. They're ambushed repeatedly as they make their way back uh, what is now Battle Road toward Lexington. The only thing that saves them from annihilation is the fact that the message that has gone back to Boston pleading for reinforcements has finally been answered by General Gage, and he has sent out a relief force of about a, a, a thousand men, and they are waiting on the on the eastern side of Lexington, just as the bedraggled original British column is about to be encircled and potentially annihilated, and they provide the the succor that's necessary at that point. Uh, there continues to be heavy fighting all the way back. Uh, through Cambridge into Boston, the town of Monotomy, which is today Arlington, uh, Massachusetts, is the scene of the heaviest fighting. There are several dozen uh, from both sides killed in Monotomy. Um, by the time the British get back to Charlestown, which is on the far side of the Charles River from Boston, um, they're exhausted. They've had heavy casualties. They recognize that something dramatic has changed in America at this point. Um, they will evacuate their, their wounded and uh, the dead that they've been able to collect back into Boston, and the revolution has begun. Right. Spontaneous combustion. I mean, there's been no declaration yet. I mean, we're still a long way away from the Declaration of Independence. And so the British are now cornered in Boston. Well, not yet cornered, but, but they are assembled in Boston. And then the next thing that happens, if I remember correctly, is, is Bunker Hill. Well, that's right. The, the British are, are in Boston. They're occupying the town. Uh, a number of rebels have left or tried to leave. Uh, a number of loyalists have, have come into Boston for the protection that the British Army provides there. The town is not really besieged because the British control the sea lanes approaching Boston. There is, as I mentioned, a substantial Royal Navy force there. But they've got a problem because they are surrounded on, on three sides, essentially, by substantial uh, rebel forces. The decision is made in mid-June 1775, so this is two months after Lexington and Concord, to uh, try and seize the high ground near Charlestown, right across the Charles River from, from uh, North End in Boston. The uh, Americans, again, get wind of what the British are up to. Uh, they have assembled a, a, a force to, and they send them into Charlestown Peninsula uh, to begin building fortifications. This is uh, the night of uh, June 16th and 17th, 1775. The British uh, on warships close to Charlestown can hear this odd noise at three in the morning, the sound of picks and shovels, digging excavations. Um, when dawn arrives, and it's early in mid-June uh, at that latitude, um, they see that there are hundreds of rebels digging basically a fort. They're making a fort 
uh, on Breed's Hill. Um, the, the Americans have uh, kind of mistaken the t- topography of their own uh, territory here, and uh, Breed's Hill is not the right place to be building this fort, but it ends up being where it is built. The uh, uh, the, Amer- the uh, British uh, General Gage uh, sends a force uh, by boat uh, across the Charles River. It's commanded by General William Howe, who will succeed Gage as the British commander in North America. Um, and they start up the hill. They have a, a plan of basically frontal attack to overrun uh, this rabble of rebels. Of course, none of them have uniforms. They, they really are just a kind of ragtag militia, but they're heavily armed. They have, they have cannon as well as muskets. Um, it's a catastrophe for the British. They will end up in the Battle of Bunker Hill, which is actually fought on Breed's Hill, uh, claiming about a square mile of rebel-held territory around Charlestown, on Charlestown Peninsula, at a cost of a 1,000 casualties, including 256 British dead. Um, of, of all the officers, uh, British officers killed in eight years of war during the Revolution, uh, one in every eight of those killed dies in four hours at Bunker Hill. Um, General Howe has been marching up the hill with his men. He marches back down the hill. Every member of his staff, every officer on his staff has been killed or wounded. Howe is un- untouched, but he's got blood all over his uniform from uh, the men around him being shot. Um, it's you know it's not a, it's not pain free by any means for the Americans. Uh, Dr. Warren, who is probably the most gifted of the uh, rebel leaders, uh, shows up. He's been made a major general that week. He's got almost no military experience. He shows up with a musket. He's determined to fight as a private in the ranks. Um, he's shot in the head and killed. That's the end of of Dr. Warren. It's a loss, really a loss for the rebels. And there are quite a few others who are, are killed or wounded also. But uh, for the British, uh, when the word gets back to, to London and to, to Britain generally of what has happened at Bunker Hill, there's a recognition that, A, uh, these rebels actually know how to fight and are willing to fight, and B, that this isn't going to be as quick and easy as we had hoped, that we're in it for the long haul. We've got to make some serious decisions about whether we're going to reinforce the forces that we've got in North America, whether we're going to divert more of our Navy there. And they're always looking over their shoulder at the French and the Spanish who are nursing grievances from their humiliation in the Seven Years' War and are biding their time waiting for the opportunity to throw in their lot potentially with the Americans or otherwise make life more difficult for the British. So Bunker Hill is an extraordinarily bloody day and a really important day uh, as a milestone in the revolution. All right. So now the British are, you know, backed into Boston and they have a, if they're going to stay in America and if they're going to try to win this uh put down this insurrection, it's, it presents them with an immense logistical problem. Give us some, and you, you do this very well in the book, I mean, you give us the idea of, to supply how many troops in America, they, they've got to bring food, munitions, everything, because they they can't live off the country. I mean, they thought they could do that, but, but that's not going to happen, so... Yeah. There, it, yeah. 
Yeah, that's, well, that's exactly right, Lewis. They every time they venture into the countryside to gather food and forage, they get ambushed, and so they're going to have to ship virtually everything that they need, from bread to bullets to uniforms to forage for their horses from uh, English and Irish ports. And the and horses as well. Uh, yeah, the horses as well. Well, the horses are the horses are important. You don't move anywhere in 18th century warfare without having horses to pull your supply wagons, to pull your artillery carriages, to carry your officers, and so on. To give you one example of how difficult this is, and they have underestimated how hard it is to wage an expeditionary war across 3,000 miles of open ocean in the age of sail. So when the British uh, show up in New York the following summer, 1776, General Howe, who's now in command, asks London for 950 horses, primarily to pull his artillery carriages and his supply wagons so that he can move somewhere other than Brooklyn. 950 horses are shipped from Britain and Ireland. 400 of them died during the crossing. Scores of others are ruined beyond use. When they're in Boston, there is a request for food, forage, everything that they need. Forty-some ships leave Britain in the winter of 1775-76, uh, carrying this, these provisions to the embattled army in Boston. Um, a majority of those 40-some ships are either blown to the West Indies by winter gales, blown back to Britain, or intercepted by rebel marauders, privateers, essentially, uh, of, uh, of uh, 74 hogs that arrive in one shipment. Uh, only 12 or 14 arrive alive. Uh, of the sheep that are sent uh, in shipments trying to provide mutton and, and uh, uh, you know, sustenance to the, the army, uh, the vast majority of the sheep die. Um, the British are going to face problems like this throughout the war. It's a much more difficult logistical challenge than they have realized. It's also much more expensive. The, when the, the the British Army is uh, headquartered in New York in 1776, um, uh, of the, uh, the, the 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 British uh, government it has 400 ships that are providing uh, victuals and supplies. Uh, that's several times more ships that were needed during the Seven Years' War, which which had been a global war. So, um, you know, we see in the British effort that, um, A, this is, again, going to be more difficult than anyone had recognized. It's also going to be a lot more expensive than anyone had recognized. And we keep feeding uh, more regiments from our army, more ships from our navy. Yes, it's the greatest navy the world has ever seen, but it does have limits. And we're also concerned, again, looking over our shoulder at the French. The French are, are rebuilding their navy, uh, and there's concern every time uh, a, a small squadron from the Royal Navy is sent to North America, that's one squadron fewer to protect the home islands if and when the French come into the war. So uh, this quickly devolves into uh, uh, a bit of a nightmare for King George and for his ministers as they uh, continue to double down 
through 1775 into 1776, thinking that eventually there's going to be a breaking point, that they're going to be able to crush this insurrection uh, eventually, and uh, and of course it, it doesn't happen, and uh, the the war is going to last for eight years extraordinarily expensive in terms of blood and treasure to the empire. All right. Now, to keep the narrative going, I mean, get us from the British back into Boston after Bunker Hill. And then when does George Washington arrive to take over command of the rebel army in in Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Well, when does he that arrives happen? on the first first Sunday in July of 1775. Okay. Um, at this point, the uh, the Battle of Bunker Hill is uh, two weeks behind them. He was not there for Bunker Hill. Um, the the siege, uh, such as it is, is in full force at this point. There's cannon fire back and forth between the rebel lines, which are. Uh, almost encircling Boston and the British fortifications uh, uh, that are growing by the day in Boston itself. Washington um, has been chosen as the commander-in-chief of the newly named Continental Army in part because he is a Virginian. Uh, there's an effort to use the Army and its commander-in-chief as a unifying factor in this newly emerging country, which of course is not a country yet. There's been no declaration of independence. The colonies are colonies, they're not states. But it's believed that if Washington, this Virginian, can come and command an army that is primarily composed of New England regiments, that this will go a long way toward uh, first of all, getting the southern colonies involved and would go a long way toward unifying these 13 disparate countries that are uh, disparate colonies, which are almost like individual countries at this point. Washington has five years of military experience as a militia colonel uh, from Virginia during the French and Indian War always serving under superior British command. He's been out of uniform for more than 16 years at this point. He's basically become a, a plantation owner, a, a gentleman farmer, quite successfully at Mount Vernon in northern Virginia. Um, there's a lot that he does not know about being a soldier. There's a lot that he never knew about. He doesn't know much about artillery. He doesn't know much about cavalry. And he sure doesn't know much about commanding a national force. He shows up. He's uh, disparaging of the uh, New Englanders he's commanding. He refers to them as dirty New Englanders. He has nothing good to say about his junior officers. There's a mystical bond between leader and led that he has got to learn, and that's one of the things that we're going to watch in the first couple of years of the war as this bond is built, as Washington recognizes that there is uh, – that that he has work to do to win the affection, the trust, the obedience uh, of these soldiers. This is a guy who has left Mount Vernon uh, uh, with uh, 200 slaves taking care of business for him while he's away at war. He has very little understanding of what it means for a yeoman farmer or a shopkeeper to leave his farm, to leave his family, and to go serve at Washington's side during the siege of Boston and beyond. Uh, the sacrifice that's being made, the hardship, the, the pain, the, 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 the loneliness, 
Um, he doesn't really understand this initially. And again, we're going to watch Washington grow into the job. Many fits and starts. He's not a naturally gifted tactical commander. He reminds me a bit of Dwight Eisenhower in that respect. Um, but he's, he, he's got uh, extraordinary leadership skills. He's got a brain built for executive action. He's got a lot going for him. But he's going to have to put this together over the course well, over the course of eight years, as it turns out, but especially in these first couple of years of the war. And so he shows up in July, takes command, and he's the one who's got to decide, okay, now what are we going to do? And uh, the siege continues uh, through the winter. It's a very hard winter for both sides. Uh, his main problem is that he doesn't have enough Gunpowder, he's constantly fretting over gunpowder shortages. He just calls it the thing. And he doesn't have enough artillery to really inconvenience the British behind their fortifications in Boston. He sends a 25-year-old Boston bookseller who's got a knack for gunnery, a guy named Henry Knox, who will become the father of American artillery. He sends him to Fort Ticonderoga, several hundred miles away on Lake Champlain, where the British have abandoned guns that had been at this fort and at nearby Crown Point. The Americans have captured these forts. Being there, uh, Knox, in an extraordinary uh, uh, feat of will, uh, in the middle of the winter in 1775-76, gathers up uh, dozens of, of field guns and hauls them by sled and by boat back to Cambridge. And it's these guns which, in the middle of March 1776, will permit Washington to dominate the high ground. The British wake up one morning and find that there are lots of cannons looking right down at us. And that will be the beginning of the end of the British uh, siege in Boston. They will evacuate the city two weeks later. They evacuate. They go to Halifax. And then... They show up, and let's now get to New York in June uh, 1776. I mean, the, the, you described this as a battle which had the most combatants in it in the course of the entire war on both sides. And it is a decisive battle. I mean, if the it's a battle that actually takes place in Brooklyn, but if, if the British can win it, I mean, they can almost put the win the war right there. That's right. Um, yeah, the the, uh, the Americans uh, control New York. The British begin to show up in force and reinforced. Uh, part of them from Halifax, as you say. Reinforcements come from Britain. They're bringing this time not only British troops but mercenary Germans, which we call Hessians. They're not all from Hesse, but we call them all Hessians. And by August of 1776, they're ready to strike. Very well-organized amphibious assault uh, under the command of General William Howe, the British commander-in-chief at this point. They launch uh, across the where today the Verrazano Narrows Bridge is from Staten Island, to Long Island, the western edge of Long Island, uh, and they rout the American forces there. Washington doesn't really understand how weak his defenses are. He doesn't really understand how jeopardized his forces in New York generally are, not just on Long Island and around Brooklyn. Um, when the British launch a full-fledged attack at the end of August, 
1776, Washington uh, has, uh, you'd have to say that he has mispositioned his defenses. The British, in a, a really quite uh, a deft uh, uh, attack plan, uh, hold the, the Americans in place in their fortifications while in the middle of the night sending a a, a large, uh, well-armed column around the American left flank. Uh, they go from what is now Flatbush out uh, toward uh, Jamaica Plain, and then the Americans wake up and they have the British Army behind them, which is not where you want to be. It uh, turns into a rout. Uh, Americans have heavy casualties. Uh, they retreat uh, is a route, men running, throwing away their weapons, trying to get to safety back within the fortifications of the little village of Brooklyn itself. Um, Howe has an opportunity at this point to uh, exterminate the, the American army or a good portion of it. Um, and he does not uh, attack aggressively, partly because the Americans in Brooklyn have bigger, heavier more lethal field guns than Howe has at this point, partly because his men are really tired after this long day of, of routing the Americans. Um, Washington makes the correct decision that he is going to evacuate his force, if he can, across the East River from Long Island to Manhattan Island. A providential fog rolls in. Uh, he has assembled a, a small flotilla. It's kind of uh, the American Dunkirk. Uh, and in the fog, they slip away in the middle of the night. The British recognize uh, almost at dawn the next morning that the Americans are escaping. It's too late. By the time they, they rally, they, they, they find the American entrenchments empty. Uh, Washington gets away to fight another day. It's a pretty critical moment because he's been pinned against, he, Washington, has been pinned against the East River. Uh, if the British had been willing to take the casualties, if Howe had been a little bolder, if, 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 that's yeah. the contingency of warfare. Uh, but he gets away, uh, and the Americans still hold Manhattan at this point. But then in the next few months, Howe chases the Americans out of Manhattan. He, he chases them up the island, and then he chases them across the Hudson and into New Jersey. Dwell briefly on that passage, and then we'll get to, I want to get into New Jersey and down to Trenton. Yeah. Yeah, the American position in New York is not good. The British control the waterways. New York is a is an archipelago, and whoever controls the water controls the land, basically. Um, how deftly maneuvers the Washington is forced to abandon Manhattan. There's a disaster at Fort Washington uh, above what is now Harlem. Uh, 3,000 Americans are, are killed or captured there. The Americans are routed at Fort Lee right across the Hudson River, uh, the biggest American post in northern New Jersey at that point. And then the long retreat begins. This is late November, early December of 1776. Washington's army is down to uh, about 3,000 men. It's a tiny force. And they're retreating across New Jersey with the British on their heels, a large British Hessian force, uh, uh, again, threatening them with extermination. Uh, Washington slips across the Delaware River westbound into Pennsylvania. Uh, this is uh, the middle of December 1776. And Washington writes at this point, uh, the game is pretty near up. 
Um, he realizes that um, he's, he's, he's short of everything, uh, men, uh, hope, uh, munitions, and um, he's, he, as he says at the time, desperate times require desperate measures. And he is thinking about what kind of desperate measure can save the cause at this point. It's not just the Army. It's the whole American cause. Yeah, and, and he realizes that that it's on you know, on, on, the, on the brink of extinction, the whole American cause. He, he knows that. He does know that. Uh, it's hard not to know it. And the, 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 the British, and particularly the Hessians, have been ravaging New Jersey. There have been a lot of rapes. There's a lot of pillage. Um, there, uh, what we would today call war crimes occurring. Um, so Washington, uh, seeing that um, he really has nothing to lose at this point, concocts a scheme to cross back into New Jersey on on uh, Christmas night, 1776. He knows that the British have overextended their defenses. Now, the British have decided, General Howe has decided, that we're going to go to winter quarters, which is what usually happened in the 18th century, that the fighting is over for the season until the spring comes around and the fighting begins again. So he has left uh, uh uh, cantonments around New Jersey, one of which is in Trenton. It's occupied by about a thousand Hessian troops. Uh, Washington has good intelligence. He knows who's there. He knows what the defenses are like. And so famously uh, crosses the Delaware River on Christmas night, uh, 1776, uh, and in a, a, a pretty deft attack uh, using a pincer movement, uh, falls on this uh, uh, Hessian contingent at dawn on December 26. The Hessians are not drunk, as is often claimed in American mythology. Uh, their commander, a colonel named Rawl, is not drunk. He's quite capable. And these Hessian soldiers are, are, are pretty good troops, but they are surprised, and they are outnumbered, and they are overwhelmed. This uh, signal victory, which occurs over the course of several hours, that morning uh, results in uh, about uh, eight or nine hundred uh, German troops being killed or, or mostly captured. Uh, Trenton is taken. Washington crosses back into Pennsylvania again. And remarkably enough, instead of just counting his winnings and doing a little strutting, he decides to double down. And he's going to cross into New Jersey again. This is early January uh, 1777 and gull the British into attacking him at Trenton, where he has uh, placed his troops in good uh, entrenchments. The British do this. They're very obliging. They attack him. They take heavy casualties along the creek that flows through Trenton. And in the, in the night, uh, as the uh, fighting uh, dies down for the night, Washington slips away, slips around the left end of the British uh, line and attacks the British rear guard in Princeton, uh, January 3rd, 1777. The British have left uh, a couple of regiments there. Again, Washington has good intelligence. He knows who they are, where they are, how many there are. And uh, while the British are waking up in Trenton to realize that the army that had been right across from them across this creek is gone, they hear gunfire 10 miles in their rear, and it's Washington attacking the rear guard and routing it. It's a, it's, uh, it's not much of a fight. The British 
rear guard is destroyed. Washington takes his army up into North Jersey to Morristown, where they're able to find secure winter quarters. The British cannot get at them there. And that will be the end of the fighting for 1776-77. They will not begin again until spring weather comes uh, and the fighting season is renewed. Um, all in all, it's been uh, an extraordinary revival of American fortunes at a time when it looked as if American fortunes were at uh, they were at their nadir. It really looked as though, as Washington said, the game is is nearly up. And this is where your first volume ends in in the winter of 1777 when they have made this victory that has brought them back from the brink. And what what have we learned, I mean, in, in, in these two years? What have we learned about the character of the Americans? I mean, the wonderful thing about your book is that you draw on letters and diaries and, and the... Uh, so you get a sense of what is in the heads of, of the young Americans. I mean, I mean, these are most of them are, are kids. It's incredible endurance. I mean, uh, I mean, they they uh, they never have enough to eat. They they often barefoot, almost always cold, and they're learning. Yeah. They're learning to uh, to fight, but they're also learning. Uh, getting some idea of of a a common cause is that right? Well, that's I'm, right. Yeah. I mean, that, that's quite right. And that's uh, you know, these two years have been important both in terms of military developments, but also in terms of political and national developments. The Declaration of Independence has come out. Obviously, in July of 1776, it's a ringing statement of of values and of aspirations and of grievances. Um, we have seen the, the army, the Continental Army, which is reinforced frequently by local militias. We've seen that army become the in, indispensable institution. It does become the unifying factor for the colonies, which become states in July of 76. Um, it's the long pole in the tent for this emerging republic, and Washington is the indispensable man in this indispensable institution. I mean, he has learned a lot about leadership. He's learned a lot about generalship. Um, and they have, even though there's going to be a lot of pain in the future after the successes at Trenton and Princeton, there's still going to be years of fighting and misery, and we're going to end up with at least 25,000 Americans killed. Um, it's really a, a long slog ahead, and yet there is an identity emerging, and there is a recognition that um, these are a determined people. They, they've got a vision of a collective future. They don't all share it. Probably 20% of the 2 million white Americans at this time are loyalists. They will actively support the crown in one way or another. There are 500,000 black slaves in America. Uh, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident uh, that all men are created equal does not apply to them. It does not apply to women. It does not apply to indigents. These are aspirational words. Um, it's, you know, there's a work in progress here on both a military level, a political level, and, and as a people. Um, you know, I, one of the things that I take away from watching this unfold from the 
vantage point of 243 years later, is that the nation was born bickering. Uh, disputation is in the national genome. And uh, there's going to be bickering all the way through the revolution, and obviously there's going to be bickering all the way to the present day in our national history. And um, what you can hope for is for leaders to arise as Washington arose, uh, who can help in the moment to provide the kind of stalwart leadership that's necessary, who've got the commitment to a cause larger than themselves, who've got uh, the Republican values that we hold dear, small r, Republican values. Um, and uh, that's what we're watching as we see the revolution unfold in these first couple of years. Well, it's a marvelous spectacle. And, and the... Uh as I say, it's a wonderful book, and, and thank you, Rick Atkins, for taking so much time to talk to us today. I mean, I I hope this book has many, many readers. Thank you, Lewis. I've enjoyed the conversation very much. Okay. All right. Thanks. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.